Michael Vonnen, and welcome to Second Breakfast, discussing Middle Earth. Thanks for those of you who listened to the debut episode. If you haven't listened yet, I spoke on the Estari, or the Five Wizards. Take a listen if that interests you. I've been receiving a lot of great feedback from you all. For those of you who don't know, I've created not only a Facebook page for this podcast, but a Facebook group as well, made to share and discuss the podcast as well as all things Tolkien. It's a great community to talk with other Tolkienites as well as discuss the episode topics. For this second episode, I decided to speak on Melkor, also known as Morgoth. Melkor is arguably the most important character in all the Legendarium, and we're surely going to find out why. First, let me give you a brief intro to who we're talking about. Melkor was the first Dark Lord over Middle-earth, one far mightier than Sauron. You will also hear him referred to sometimes more frequently as Morgoth, like the episode title states. Morgoth is the name given to Melkor by the elves, and thus becomes commonplace during the first age of the sun and afterwards. I will refer to him using both names, I'm sure. So who exactly is Melkor? Melkor is one of the Valar, spiritual powers as they refer to, very similar to the concept of angels. The Valar once existed as the Einar, also called the Holy Ones, with their creator and god of existence, Eru Iluvatar. In Tolkien's creation, Eru and the Einar, in unity, created the universe, Tolkien using uh, magic as the grand metaphor. In the music of the Einar, as it's called, Eru and the Einar sing the world into creation, each voice weaving their own ideas and thoughts into this music. However, there was soon discord among the harmonies, one voice whose singing opposed Eru's. It was from none other than Melkor. This discord originated from his desire for further glory to himself and his own part in the music. He wished to create beings of his own devising, which uh, went against Eru's vision, for only Eru has what is called the flame imperishable, the power to give life. He created the Einar through this flame imperishable, also called the secret fire, and Melkor wished to do that himself. Because of his discords, other Einar were tarnished and sang their songs according to Melkor's theme, not Eru's. This clash of thoughts and singing continue as Eru creates new themes, three in total, and in each, Melkor sings his own thoughts against Eru's. Melkor's discord is the source of all flaws in the world, for if he did not sing in opposition to Eru, the world would have been made righteous with Eru's theme reigning true. Yet Eru saw the future discord and what it would bring the world, and he and the Einar perceived that great things would actually come from it. And thus, Eru decided to create the universe according to this flawed theme. As we can see, it's easy to draw parallels to Christianity slash Catholicism, where Melkor represents Satan. I do want to point out that Tolkien said himself that he did not like allegory, which is defined as a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically moral or political. His quote reads, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and weary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the proposed domination of the author. 
So it might not be correct to assume that he was retelling Genesis from the Bible, even though he was a Roman Catholic. Instead, he could have simply used Genesis as inspiration for his own take on Middle-earth's creation, just as he takes influence from Nordic, Germanic, and other religions and cultures. Once the world was fashioned according to this theme, Melkor and other Einar descended to the world, for they were greatly fascinated with it. The powerful Einar who came to the world were known as the Valar, and the lesser Einar spirits were known as the Maiar. As we learned last episode, the five wizards, the Balrogs, and Sauron were all Maiar spirits, the lesser ones, which means that they were at one point Einar and contributed to the singing of the world. When the first of the Valar came, the world was made but not yet formed. There were no mountains or trees, just matter. Melkor claimed the land which was to be named Arda as his own, while the rest of the Valar stayed together and chose one named Manwe as their leader. Manwe was not as strong as Melkor, but he kept true to Eru's own theme. The Valar began to work at shaping the world, but Melkor was still bitter and angry, and undid all their efforts. That is, until another Einar descended to the world, now a Vala named Tulkas, and Melkor saw his might and fled Arda. With Melkor gone, the, Val- the Valar created two great lamps to give light to the world, starting the era now called the Years of the Lamps, and they worked at constructing the world. Yet Melkor slipped back in unnoticed, this time with some of the Maiar who allied themselves with him, namely his most powerful Maya, Sauron, and the Balrogs. Their first act was creating a vast underground fortress named Utumno, also called Udun, which you may remember from Gandalf's speech when he was facing the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, when he says, Go back to the shadow flame of Udun. In fact, in that speech he also says that he is a servant of the secret fire, revealing that he is a Maya who serves Eru. Anyway, Melkor delved Utumno in the far north of Middle-earth, raising tall mountains around it. And before the Valar could react to his reappearance, he destroyed the two lamps. And with the light of the lamps gone, the Valar retreated from Middle-earth across the sea to a continent called Aman, where they founded Valinor. This would later come to be known as the Undying Lands. There, two light-giving trees were created to spread light over the world. Meanwhile on Middle-earth, Melkor now had free reign and started turning the land to decay, creating creatures of his own devising. He created a second, lesser fortress called Angband, to which he gave to his most powerful Maya, Sauron. Yet in all of this creation, I haven't mentioned one thing. The children of Iluvatar, elves and men. During all of this, the elves were actually in Middle-earth and sleeping. And since Melkor was left to his own devices unchecked, he found the elves first, taking many of them back to a tombno where he twisted them by torture into what would be called orcs. Since he did not have the flame imperishable like Eru, he could not fashion beings like elves or men, thus he had to resort to transforming what Eru had already created. Yet hope was not lost for the elves, for a Vala named Arome ventured from Valinor to Middle-earth and discovered where the elves lay sleeping. At this discovery, the War of the Powers began. The Valar waged war against Melkor, overtaking him, and he retreated back to the depths of Atumno, where he was ultimately defeated and captured. The Valar in haste brought Melkor back to Valinor, 
and despite his begs for pardon, they threw him into the halls of Mandos for three ages, the halls of Mandos being the place that holds the souls of the dead. But the Valar did not explore all of Utumno's tunnels and caverns where Sauron and the Balrogs lay hiding. During Melkor's imprisonment, they made their way to Angband, hoping one day Melkor would return. After Melkor was imprisoned for three ages, he was brought before Manwe and repented before him, of course hiding his true hatred and malice. Yet Manwe did not and could not understand Melkor's true evil and discord, so he granted his plea for release. When Arome found the elves and they awoke, he led them towards Valinor so as not to be destroyed or subjected to Melkor's evil. But not all of them made it. And along the way, many groups and factions formed from the elves, mainly between those who finished their journey to Valinor and those who did not. Of those who did, one group was named the Noldor Elves, though only half of them made it while the other half gave up on their journey in Middle-earth. An elf named Finwë led them and became their king in Valinor. The Noldor were the most talented of the elves in craftsmanship and smithing, and Melkor, still wrathful against the elves for bringing about his destruction on Middle-earth, saw their usefulness and chose them to make his next target. Though the elves have been awake in the world for a long time thus far, men have not yet awoken. Melkor began spreading lies that the reason the Valar brought them away from Middle-earth to Valinor was to give Middle-earth to men to call their own and bring it to glory instead of the elves. Finwë's firstborn son, Feanor, bought into the lies and started to lead a rebellion against the Valar, despite actually hating Melkor. Feanor was the greatest of all the Noldorian smiths and crafted the Silmarils, jewels made with the light of the two great trees. Melkor had his eyes on them. But his role in all of this was kept from the Valar, so when Feanor began rebelling against them and bringing many of the Noldor with him, he was seen as the source of strife instead of Melkor. It wasn't until Feanor threatened his brother with violence that the Valar took Feanor to uncover what the problem was. This is when they learned about Melkor's trickery. But he could not be found. He was actually away in the far south of Amman and found Ungoliant, the first and mother of all spiders. Yes, Shelob was one of her offspring. Ungoliant's origin is unknown, one theory being that she came from the darkness that enveloped the world in the early days of creation. In any regard, she has an utter hatred for light and wishes solely for the world to be covered in darkness. Melkor, learning of this, promised to fill her everlasting hunger. Thus he allied with Ungoliant and first set off to destroy the two trees casting light across the world. Using his spear, Melkor stabbed the trees, and Ungoliant feasted on their sap, draining the trees of life and poisoning them until they died and their light extinguished. During the chaos that ensued from the complete darkness around the world, Melkor and Ungoliant sped northward to where Finwë dwelled, guarding the Silmarils. Melkor slayed him and took the Silmarils for his own. The two enemies of the Valar then escaped Aman northward to the Grinding Ice, an expanse in the far north of the world that connected Amon and Middle-earth. Thus, Melkor returned to Middle-earth once more, and they ventured to Angband. Now Ungoliant requested of Melkor the Silmarils, so that she may eat them and have her unrelenting hunger finally satisfied. But Melkor wouldn't give them up. Thus, Ungoliant attacked Melkor, spinning her webs around him, and the scream he let out from the pain awoke the Balrogs in Angband, who came to his rescue and drove Ungoliant away. 
yet Melkor did not command them pursue and allowed Ungoliant's escape. He went to work rebuilding Angband, and the underground fortress was so vast that from the dirt and debris that was created, he formed three volcanoes known altogether as Thangorodrim. And once this was complete, he worked at rebuilding his army. When Feanor learned Melkor slew his father and taken the Silmarils, he named him Morgoth, meaning Dark Enemy, and forever after all of his enemies called him that. Even though we are in the years of the trees, another era thread has started, the ages of the children of Iluvatar. You've probably heard the terms the first age of Middle-earth, second, third, and fourth. Those are the ages of the children of Iluvatar, meaning elves and men. The first age actually began when the elves first awoke and began their journey with Arome during the years of the trees and continued after the trees were destroyed and the years of the sun began, which we'll talk about in a few seconds here. Many of the stories of the first age take place on Middle-earth in a place called Beluriand, west of the Blue Mountains. Beluriand does not appear on your typical map of Middle-earth for reasons we will also soon discuss. The Second Age concerns itself with the Numenorians and Sauron's early workings in Middle-earth. And the Third Age holds the stories of the wizards, Sauron's return to power, and the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. After Melkor's escape, the Noldor, led by Feanor himself, set sail across the sea from Valinor to Middle-earth in an attempt to wage war on Mel Morgoth and take back the Silmarils. This became known as the War of the Great Jewels, or sometimes more commonly, the War of the Jewels. The war started immediately upon their landing, and the Noldor had the upper hand despite being outnumbered by Morgoth's orcs. They fought to the very gates of Angband, where Morgoth sent out his Balrogs against Feanor, who fought against Gothmog, Lord of the Balrogs, whose only other equal in Morgoth's army was Sauron. And though he survived the battle, rescued by his sons, he died soon after. But the Noldor forces were still menacing, so Morgoth offered terms of surrender, including offering one of the Silmarils to Feanor's eldest son, Meadros. Meadros agreed to meet both parties, but neither of them trusted each other and brought forces ready for attack. But with the Balrogs on his side, Morgoth slew the elves and captured Meadros, chaining him to Thangorodrim and attempted to barter for his release, the condition being that the Noldor would leave the northern regions of Middle-earth. Knowing he would not keep his word, the Noldor did not accept. Then from the west came Fingolfin, Feanor's half-brother, across the grinding ice from Valinor with his following of the Noldor elves. However, his host and those who were already in Middle-earth began quarreling with one another, because Fingolfin and his elves did not follow Feanor to Middle-earth from the beginning. Melkor saw this strife as an opportunity, but was thwarted when the Valar revealed the moon and the sun. Many things happened during Morgoth's confusion and hesitation that changed the tide of the war. Firstly, when the sun arose, men awoke. Morgoth was quick to gain their support, turning them against Eru. But many of them fled Morgoth's evil and went west towards Beleriand, eventually becoming known as the Edain, the forefathers of the Numenorians and the Dunedain. The Edain befriended the elves and they became allies. A Noldor elf by the name of Fingon, which is Fingolfin's son, snuck through to Angband to save his half-brother Meadros from Morgoth. This act united the hosts of Feanor and the hosts of Fingolfin 
and the Noldor elves began creating many great nations and strongholds in Middle-earth. And when they were strong, they assailed Morgoth, destroyed his armies, and set siege upon Angband. After numerous attempts, Morgoth could not defeat his enemies and thus laid in waiting deep in Angband for many years while he attempted to create stronger creatures than just his orcs, his dragons. And when he deemed the time right, he began the battle later to be named Dagor Bragolak, the Battle of the Sudden Flame. He released fire and lava from Thangorodrim, unleashed the dragons, balrogs, and his monster hordes against the elves and broke the siege. With high momentum, he split the elven hosts apart and destroyed some of the sons of Feanor and many of their kin. Fingolfin and Fingon survived the war, but many of the elves were driven from their northern homes and went south to the realms of Doriath, where King Fingon and the Maya Melian resided. Fingolfin, thinking the Noldor defeated and with no hope of victory, rode alone to Angband, where he challenged Morgoth to single combat. Morgoth came from Angband dressed, as, dressed in black armor and wielding Grond, his brutal warhammer. I tried writing a description of their battle, but it just paled in comparison to what is written in the Silmarillion, so instead I'm going to read from the story itself. Then Morgoth hurled aloft Grond, the hammer of the underworld, and swung it down like a bolt of thunder. But Fingolfin sprang aside and Grond rent a mighty pit in the earth, whence smoke and fire darted. Many times Morgoth essayed to smite him, and each time Fingolfin leapt away, as a lightning shoots from under a dark cloud. And he wounded Morgoth with seven wounds, and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish, whereat the hosts of Angband fell upon their faces in dismay, and the cries echoed in the Northlands. But at the last the king grew weary, and Morgoth bore down his shield upon him. Thrice he was crushed to his knees, and thrice arose again, and bore up his broken shield and stricken helm. But the earth was all rent and pitted about him, and he stumbled and fell backward before the feet of Morgoth. And Morgoth set his left foot upon his neck, and the weight of it was like a fallen hill. Yet with his last and desperate stroke, Fingolfin hewed the foot with Ringiel, and the blood gushed forth black and smoking, and filled the pits of Grond. Thus died Fingolfin, High King of the Noldor, most proud and valiant of the elven kings of old. The orcs made no boast of that duel at the gate, neither do the elves sing of it, for their sorrow is too deep. Yet the tale of it is remembered still, for Thorondor, King of Eagles, brought the tidings to Gondolin and to Hithlum afar off. And Morgoth took the body of the elven king and broke it, and would cast it to his wolves, but Thorondor came hasting from his eyrie among the peaks of the Chrysigrim, and he stooped upon Morgoth and marred his face. The rushing of the wind, wings of Thorondor was like the noise of the winds of Manway, and he seized the body in his mighty talons, and soaring suddenly above the darts of the orcs, he bore the king away. And he laid him upon the mountain top that looked from the north upon the hidden valley of Gondolin, and Turgon, coming, built a high cairn over his father. No orc dared ever ever after to pass over the mount of Fingolfin or draw nigh his tomb until the doom of Gondolin was come and treachery was born among his kin. Morgoth went ever halt of one foot after that day and the pain of his wounds could not be healed and in his face was the scar that Thorondor made. Yet thereafter, Morgoth realized his losses were as numerable as the elves and his forces spread too thin. 
for there were many of the Noldor and Edain that resisted. Thus he brought many of his orcs back to Angband, and brought in many of the Easterlings from over the Blue Mountains to assail the Edain man on man, while his own forces regrouped. And when they did, he unleashed war once more, and was again close to achieving great victory. Now enter Baron and Luthien. Their story would require an entire episode to cover in great detail, so this will be fairly short in comparison. Baron was a man of the Edain. Fun fact, he was the son of Barahir, whose ring eventually passed to Aragorn. Baron one day came upon Luthien, an elf born from King Thingol and the Maya Melian, and immediately fell in love. However, King Thingol would not grant Baron his daughter's hand, for that would mean she would have to lose her immortality as an elf. As a compromise, he said that he would only grant her hand if Baron could bring him back one of the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown, thinking it an impossible task. Yet after escaping death more than once and even defeating Sauron for a time, Baron and Luthien made it to Angband, and by Luthien's magic entered under disguise. When Morgoth saw through the disguise, Luthien sung and cast a spell against Morgoth, sending him and all of Angband into slumber, while Barian wrested a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. In his attempt to rest a second, his knife snapped and a shard struck Morgoth's face, which stirred him. Baron and Luthien attempted escape before he and Angband awoke, but at the gate stood Karkaroth, the greatest of all werewolves. Baron attempted to slay the beast with the Silmaril, but Karkaroth attacked and bit off Baron's hand holding the Silmaril, causing his insides to burn and he ran rampant across Middle-earth. As Morgoth awoke, his rage was terrifying, causing the iron mountains around Angband to erupt. But as Angband moved against Baron and Luthien, the eagles of Manwë rescued them, and thereafter they returned to Doriath to track down the werewolf. The deeds of Baron and Luthien gave the elves and men hope, and the union of Meadros was formed, full of the hosts of men, elves, and dwarves. And when they came to Angband, there started the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, or the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, which can be found told impressively in the second chapter of the Children of Hurin. But Morgoth was aware of him, and their battle planned to draw his forces out with one army led by Meadros, then sandwich him with another led by Fingon. He sent a great force led by Glaurong the dragon and his brood against Meadros, before they and Fingon could meet. While that battle waged, Morgoth sent out a force against Fingon to bait him to Angband, where reinforcements would then decimate him. But Fingon would not fall for it, waiting for Meadros. And further yet, Turgon, the lord of Gondolin, a secret elvish nation, had come to their aid unexpectedly. However, Morgoth's bait force began to provoke them by dismembering and killing an elf named Gelmir, whose brother Gwyndor was in the front ranks watching. In his rage, Gwyndor charged forth with his own forces and nearly destroyed the bait force on their own. Fingon then sounded the charge for all his host and they broke through to Angband. Here I want to read from the Children of Hurin when Fingon gives the command, for the writing is just so masterful and beautiful it would be a shame not to. By ill chance at that point in the outpost stood Gwyndor, son of Guilin, with many folk of Nargothrond. And indeed he had marched to war with such strength as he could gather because of his grief for the taking of his brother. Now his wrath was like a flame, and he leapt forth upon horseback, 
and many riders with him, and they pursued the heralds of Angband and slew them, and all the folk of Nargothrond followed after, and they drove on deep into the ranks of Angband. And seeing this, the host of the Noldor was set on fire, and Fingon put on his white helm and sounded his trumpets, and all his host leapt forth from the hills in sudden onslaught. The light of the drawing of the swords of the Noldor was like a fire in a field of reeds, and so fell and swift was their onset that almost the designs of Morgoth went astray. Before the decoying army that he had sent west could be strengthened, it was swept away and destroyed, and the banners of Fingon passed over the Anfalglyph and were raised before the walls of Angband. Ever in the forefront of that battle went Gwyndor and the folk of Nargothrond. And even now they could not be restrained, and they burst through the outer gates and slew the guards within the very courts of Angband, and Morgoth trembled upon his deep throne, hearing them beat upon his doors. But Gwyndor was trapped there and taken alive and his folk slain, for Fingon could not come to his aid. By many secret doors in Thangorodrim, Morgoth let forth his main strength that he had held in waiting, and Fingon was beaten back with great loss from the walls of Angband. With the reinforcements from Turgon, the battle was back to balance, until Meadros' forces in the east were destroyed, and those forces of Morgoth beset Fingon, Turgon, and Hurin with his brother Huor, who still led his host of the Edine. Then Gothmog, named High Captain of Angband, drove a wedge between the forces of Fingon and the forces of Turgon and Hurin. Turning against Fingon, Morgoth's forces destroyed Fingon's forces, until he stood alone against Gothmog. Gothmog slew Fingon, leaving only Turgon and his elves fighting alongside Hurin and Huor and their men. Yet Hurin and Huor sent away Turgon so that they may live on in secret Gondolin. As Turgon retreated, Hurin and Huor and their men guarded their retreat until their forces were destroyed and at last, at the very end of the battle, stood Hurin alone. This is what is written in the children of Hurin. Last of all, Hurin stood alone. Then he cast aside his shield and seized the axe of an orc captain and wielded it two-handed, and it is sung that the axe smoked black in the blood of the troll guard of Gothmog until it withered. And each time that he slew, Hurin cried aloud, Day shall come again. Seventy times he uttered that cry, but they took him at last alive by the command of Morgoth, who thought thus to do him more evil than by death. Therefore the orcs grappled Hurin with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms. And ever were their numbers renewed, till he fell buried beneath them. Then Gothmog bound him and dragged him to Angband with mockery. Now skipping a couple pages into the next chapter, Hruin is brought before Morgoth himself. Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew by his arts and his spies that Hurin had the friendship of the king, and he sought to daunt him with his eyes. But Hurin could not yet be daunted, and he defied Morgoth. Therefore, Morgoth had had him chained and set in slow torment. But after a while he came to him, and offered him his choice to go free whither he would, or to receive power and rank as the greatest of Morgoth's captains, if he would but reveal where Turgon had his stronghold, and aught else that he knew of the king's counsels. But Hurin the Steadfast mocked him, saying, Blind you are, Morgoth Bauglir, and blind shall ever be, 
seeing only the dark. You know not what rules the hearts of men, and if you knew, you could not give it. But a fool is he who accepts what Morgoth offers. You will take first the price, and then withhold the promise, and I should get only death if I told you what you ask. Then Morgoth laughed, and he said, Death you may yet crave of me as a boon. Then he took Hurin to the Houd and Nirnaeth, which was the body pile after the war. And it was then new built, and the reek of death was upon it. And Morgoth set Hurin upon its top and bade him look west towards Hithlam, and think of his wife and his son and other kin. For they dwell now in my realm, said Morgoth, and they are at my mercy. You have none, answered Hurin. But you will not come at Turgon through them, for they do not know his secrets. Then Wrath mastered Morgoth, and he said, Yet I may come at you, and all your accursed house, and you shall be broken on my will, though you all were made of steel. And he took up a long sword that lay there and broke it before the eyes of Hurin, and a splinter wounded his face. But Hurin did not blench. Then Morgoth, stretching out his long arm towards Dorloman, cursed Hurin, and Morwen and their offspring, saying, Behold, the shadow of my thought shall lie upon them wherever they go, and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world. But Hurin said, You speak in vain, for you cannot see them nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape and desire still to be a king visible on earth. Then Morgoth turned upon Hurin, and he said, Fool little among men, and they are the least of all that speak. Have you seen the Valar, or measured the power of Manwe and Varda? Do you know the reach of their thought? Or do you think perhaps that their thought is upon you, and that they may shield you from afar? I know not, said Hurin, yet so it might be, if they willed. For the elder king shall not be dethroned while Arda endures. You say it, said Morgoth, I am the elder king, Melkor, first and mightiest of all the Valar who was before the world and made it. The shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will. But upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. Wherever they go, evil shall arise. Whenever they speak, their words shall bring ill counsel. Whatsoever they do shall turn against them. They shall die without hope, cursing both life and death. But Hurin answered, Do you forget to whom you speak? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow. And now we have knowledge of you, for we have looked on the faces that have seen the light, and heard the voices that have spoken with Manwe. Before Arda you were, but others also, and you did not make it. Neither are you the most mighty, for you have spent your strength upon yourself, and wasted it in your own emptiness. No more are you now than an escaped thrall of the Valar, and their chain still awaits you. You have learned the lessons of your masters by rote, said Morgoth, but such childish lore will not help you. Now they are all fled away. This last then I will say to you, thrall Morgoth, said Hurin, and it comes not from the lore of the Eldar, but is put into my heart in this hour. You are not the lord of men, and shall not be, though all Arda and Menel fell in your dominion. Beyond the circles of the world, you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Beyond the circles of the world I will not pursue them, said Morgoth, for beyond the circles of the world there is nothing, but within them they shall not escape me, until they enter into nothing. You lie, said Hurin. You shall see, and you shall confess that I do not lie, said Morgoth, 
and taking Huron back to Angband, he set him in a chair of stone upon a high place of Thangorodrim, from which he could see afar the land of Hithlum in the west and the lands of Beleriand in the south. There he was bound by the power of Morgoth, and Morgoth, standing beside him, cursed him again and set his power upon him, so that he could not move from that place nor die until Morgoth should release him. Sit now there, said Morgoth, and look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon those whom you have delivered to me. For you have dared to mock me, and have questioned the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Therefore with my eyes you shall see, and with my ears you shall hear, and nothing shall be hidden from you. All of this was to set up the story of the children of Hurin, one of the largest in the Silmarillion, along with Baron and Luthien. His curse did indeed follow his children, Turin and Neonor, until their deaths. Morgoth turned his attention to Turgon, the last king of the Noldor. After Hurin's refusal to reveal Gondolin's location, he captured Maeglin, Tur Turgon's nephew, and through the threat of torture and the promise of what he desired, Maeglin broke and told Morgoth all of Gondolin's secrets. The attack on Gondolin was swift and terrible, and there was nothing that could be done by Turgon. The battle was fought bravely by those in Gondolin, and where the swords Glamdring and Orcrest became renowned. It was in this battle that Gothmog was slain by the elf Echthelion. But at last Gondolin was destroyed, and with it what seemed to be any hope of Morgoth's defeat. However, in Gondolin, the man Tuor and the elf Idril, Turgon's own daughter, had an half-elfin baby named Erendil. Erendil eventually married Elwing, and they bore Elrond and Elros as sons. Yet Tuor and Idril went over the sea towards Valinor, and Erendil eventually went after them. As an aside, you may be wondering about what happened to the Silmaril that the werewolf ate. Well, after being tracked down and killed, King Thingol took possession of it, and it eventually came to be an Elwing's possession, who again is Elrond's mother. And when the descendants of Feanor came for it, she threw herself into the ocean with the jewel rather than being captured, turning into a white bird. It was this news that led Erendil to leave for Valinor, guided by Elwing and the light of the Silmaril, becoming the first mortal to ever set foot in Valinor. The Silmaril came to Erendil's possession. Once there, he went before the Valar and pleaded for them to aid the elves and men of Middle-earth against Morgoth, and they agreed, for Erendil came not for himself, but for the children of Iluvatar. And as a gift, Manwe granted to Erendil and Elwing's descendants the choice of which race they would belong to, immortal elves or mortal men. Erendil chose Elvendom, and now that the Valar agreed, they prepared a host against the unexpecting Morgoth, and made for Middle-earth to start the War of Wrath. The War of Wrath, or the Great Battle, was probably one of the greatest battles to ever take place on Middle-earth, at least until the controversial Dagor Dagorath, the final battle at the end of time. The hosts of Oman, led by the Valar, were comprised of elves, men, and dwarves. During the war, most of the Balrogs were destroyed, Morgoth's orc armies were nearly all but decimated, and all seemed lost for Morgoth until he let loose his secret creatures, the winged fire dragons, 
that had never before been seen. They were led by none other than Anclagon the Black, the largest dragon to ever have existed. This is when Erendil came from the skies in his skyship, along with the eagles of Manway. And it was Erendil who slew Anclagon, who broke Thangorodrim with his fall. Angband was then destroyed and Morgoth finally captured. The remaining two Silmarils, after a story which I won't tell today, came to the remaining two sons of Feanor, Maedros and Maglor. But they burned in their hands too greatly, and in despair, Maedros casted himself into a chasm filled with fire, while Maglor cast his Silmaril into the sea. Thus ends the story of the Silmarils, one in the sky, one in the heart of the earth, and one in the sea. The aftermath of the War of Wrath was tragically severe. Sauron escaped the Valar, orcs, though few in number, remained, and few of the Balrogs fled to the deep places of the world. Some of the cold drakes managed to escape, and few of the fire drakes escaped as well, including Smaug. But most devastating was the sinking of the western lands of Middle-earth. Almost everything west of the Blue Mountains sank underwater, which is why most maps of Middle-earth do not show Beleriand and the surrounding land, and show instead the sea west of the Blue Mountains and the Grey Havens. Most of the elves were told to return to Amman, and many did. Of those who stayed, the chiefs of among, among them included Círdan, Galadriel, Celeborn, Elrond, and Gilgalad. Of men, those Adain who fought for the Valar were given the land of Númenor, an island in the middle of the sea separating Middle-earth from Valinor. Elros, Elrond's brother, who chose mortality, was the first king of Númenor, whose descendants were Elendil, Isildur, and the Dúnedain, and, of course, Aragorn himself. This is what the Silmarillion says about Melkor's fate. But Morgoth himself, the Valar, thrust through the door of night, beyond the walls of the world into the timeless void, and a guard is set forever on those walls, and Arendil keeps watch upon the ramparts of the sky. Yet the lies that Melkor the mighty and accursed, Morgoth Boglir, the power of terror and of hate sowed in the world of elves and men, are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed. And ever and anon it sprouts anew and will bear dark fruit even unto the last, latest days. Well, that was a journey. What started as a look into Melkor turned into a brief history of creation, the years of lamps, the years of trees, and the first age of the children of Iluvatar. Of course, focusing on Melkor Morgoth. It would be impossible to tell the tales of Melkor without describing these histories because he was weaved into them so deeply. For future podcasts, I will go into more depth on some of the topics spoken here, specifically the children of Hurin, which is probably my favorite narrative in all the Legendarium. Um, I'll also talk about Baron and Luthien, more on Gondolin, more on the Noldor Elves, and, and so much more. So, now my question for you is, out of everything I've touched on today, what do you want to hear more on about? Let me know in the Facebook group, and if you haven't joined yet, find us. It's called Discussing Middle-Earth on Facebook. The Facebook page itself is the same as this podcast title, Second Breakfast Discussing Middle-Earth. Next episode, we will delve into a topic mentioned in the Lord of the Rings narrative, but not greatly explained, the Kingdom of Arnor. Farewell.